Section 30 of The Essence of Christianity by Ludwig Feuerbach. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Essence of Christianity by Ludwig Feuerbach. Translated from the German by Marian Evans. Chapter 25 The Contradiction in the Sacraments. As the objective essence of religion, the idea of God resolves itself into mere contradictions, so also on the grounds easily understood does its subjective essence. The subjective elements of religion are on the one hand faith and love. On the other hand, so far as it presents itself externally in a cultus, the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. The sacrament of faith is baptism. The sacrament of love is the Lord's Supper. In strictness, there are only two sacraments, as there are two subjective elements in religion, faith and love. For hope is only faith in relation to the future, so that there is the same logical impropriety in making it a distinct mental act as in making the Holy Ghost a distinct being. The identity of the sacraments with the specific essence of religion, as hitherto developed, is at once made evident, apart from other relations, by the fact that they have for their basis natural materials or things to which, however, is attributed a significance and effect in contradiction with their nature. Thus the material of baptism is water common natural water, just as the material of religion, in general, is common natural humanity. But as religion alienates our own nature from us, and represents it as not ours, so the water of baptism is regarded as quite other than common water, for it has not a physical but a hyperphysical power and significance. It is the lavacrum regenerationis. It purifies man from the stains of original sin, expels the inborn devil, and reconciles with God. Thus it is natural water only in appearance. In truth, it is supernatural. In other words, the baptismal water has supernatural effects, and that which operates supernaturally is itself supernatural, only in idea, only in the imagination. And yet the material of baptism is said to be natural water. Baptism has no validity and efficacy if it is not performed with water. Thus the natural quality of water has in itself value and significance, since the supernatural effect of baptism is associated in a supernatural manner with water only, and not with any other material. God, by means of his omnipotence, could have united the same effect to anything whatever. But he does not. He accommodates himself to natural qualities. He chooses an element corresponding, analogous to his operation. Thus the natural is not altogether set aside. On the contrary, there always remains a certain analogy with the natural, 
an appearance of naturalness. In like manner, wine represents blood, bread, flesh. Even a miracle is guided by analogies. Water is changed into wine or blood, one species into another, with the retention of the indeterminate generic idea of liquidity. So it is here. Water is the purest, clearest of liquids. In virtue of this, its natural character, it is the image of the spotless nature of the divine spirit. In short, water has a significance in itself as water. It is on account of its natural quality that it is consecrated and selected as the vehicle of the Holy Spirit. So far, there lies at the foundation of baptism a beautiful, profound, natural significance. But at the same time, this beautiful meaning is lost again because water has a transcendental effect, an effect which it has only through the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit, and not through itself. The natural quality becomes indifferent. He who makes wine out of water can at will unite the effects of the baptismal water with any material whatsoever. Baptism cannot be understood without the idea of miracle. Baptism is itself a miracle, the same power which works miracles and by means of them as a proof of the divinity of Christ, turns Jews and pagans into Christians. This same power has instituted baptism and operates in it. Christianity began with miracles, and it carries itself forward with miracles. If the miraculous power of baptism is denied, miracles in general must be denied. The miracle-working water of baptism springs from the same source as the water which at the wedding at Cana in Galilee was turned into wine. The faith which is produced by miracle is not dependent on me, on my spontaneity, on freedom of judgment and conviction. A miracle which happens before my eyes I must believe, if I am not utterly obdurate. Miracle compels me to believe in the divinity of the miracle worker. It is true that in some cases it presupposes faith, namely where it appears in the light of a reward, but with that exception it presupposes not so much actual faith as a believing disposition, willingness, submission, in opposition to an unbelieving, obdurate, and malignant disposition like that of the Pharisees. The end of miracle is to prove that the miracle worker is really that which he assumes to be. Faith based on miracle is the only thoroughly warranted, well-grounded, objective faith. The faith which is presupposed by miracle is only faith in a Messiah, a Christ in general, but the faith that this very man is Christ, and this is the main point, is first wrought by miracle as its consequence. This presupposition, even of an indeterminate faith, is, however, by no means necessary. Multitudes first became believers through miracles. Thus miracle was the cause of their faith. If, then, miracles do not contradict Christianity, and how should they contradict it? 
neither does the miraculous efficacy of baptism contradict it on the contrary if baptism is to have a christian significance it must of necessity have a supernaturalistic one paul was converted by a sudden miraculous appearance when he was still full of hatred to the christians christianity took him by violence it is in vain to allege that with another than paul this appearance would not have had the same consequences and that therefore the effect of it must still be attributed to paul for if the same appearance had been vouchsafed to others they would assuredly have become as thoroughly christian as paul is not divine grace omnipotent the unbelief and non-convertibility of the pharisees is no counter-argument for from them grace was expressly withdrawn the messiah must necessarily according to a divine decree be betrayed maltreated and crucified for this purpose there must be individuals who should maltreat and crucify him and hence it was a prior necessity that the divine grace should be withdrawn from these individuals it was not indeed totally withdrawn from them but this was only in order to aggravate their guilt and by no means with the earnest will to convert them how would it be possible to resist the will of god supposing of course that it was his real will not a mere phileity paul himself represents his conversion as a work of divine grace thoroughly unmerited on his part and quite correctly not to resist divine grace i e to accept divine grace to allow it to work upon one is already something good and consequently is an effect of the holy spirit nothing is more perverse than the attempt to reconcile miracle with freedom of inquiry and thought or grace with freedom of will in religion the nature of man is regarded as separate from man the activity the grace of god is the projected spontaneity of man free will made objective it is the most flagrant inconsequence to adduce the experience that men are not sanctified not converted by baptism as an argument against its miraculous efficacy as is done by rationalistic orthodox theologians for all kinds of miracles the objective power of prayer and in general all the supernatural truths of religion also contradict experience he who appeals to experience renounces faith where experience is a datum there religious faith and feeling have already vanished the unbeliever denies the objective efficacy of prayer only because it contradicts experience the atheist goes yet further he denies even the existence of god because he does not find it in experience inward experience creates no difficulty to him for what thou experiencest in thyself of another existence proves only that there is something in thee which thou thyself art not which works upon thee independently of thy personal will and consciousness without knowing what this mysterious something is 
But faith is stronger than experience. The facts which contradict faith do not disturb it. It is happy in itself. It has eyes only for itself. To all else it is blind. It is true that religion, even on the standpoint of its mystical materialism, always requires the cooperation of subjectivity, and therefore requires it in the sacraments. But herein is exhibited its contradiction with itself. And this contradiction is particularly glaring in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. For baptism is given to infants, though even in them, as a condition of its efficacy, the cooperation of subjectivity is insisted on, but singularly enough is supplied in the faith of others, in the faith of the parents, or of the representatives, or of the church in general. The object in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper is the body of Christ, a real body. But the necessary predicates of reality are wanting to it. Here we have again, in an example presented to the senses, what we have found in the nature of religion in general. The object or subject in the religious syntax is always a real human or natural subject or predicate. But the closer definition, the essential predicate of this predicate, is denied. The subject is sensuous, but the predicate is not sensuous, i.e., is contradictory to the subject. I distinguish a real body from an imaginary one only by this, that the former produces corporeal effects, involuntary effects, upon me. If, therefore, the bread be the real body of God, the partaking of it must produce in me immediate, involuntary, sanctifying effects. I need to make no special preparation to bring with me no holy disposition. If I eat an apple, the apple of itself gives rise to the taste of the apple. At the utmost, I need nothing more than a healthy stomach to perceive that the apple is an apple. The Catholics require a state of fasting as a condition of partaking the Lord's Supper. This is enough. I take hold of the body with my lips. I crush it with my teeth. By my esophagus it is carried into my stomach. I assimilate it corporeally, not spiritually. Why are its effects not held to be corporeal? Why should not this body, which is a corporeal, but at the same time heavenly, supernatural substance, also bring forth in me corporeal, and yet at the same time, holy supernatural effects? If it is my disposition, my faith, which alone makes a divine body a means of sanctification to me, which transubstantiates the dry bread into pneumatic animal substance, why do I still need an external object? It is I myself who give rise to the effect of the body on me, and therefore to the reality of the body. I am acted on by myself. Where is the object of truth and power? He who partakes the Lord's Supper unworthily has nothing further than the physical enjoyment of bread and wine. He who brings nothing takes nothing away. 
the specific difference of this bread from common natural bread rests therefore only on the difference between the state of mind at the table of the lord and the state of mind at any other table he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself not discerning the lord's body but this mental state itself is dependent only on the significance which i give to this bread if it has for me the significance not of bread but of the body of christ then it has not the effect of common bread in the significance attached to it lies its effect i do not eat to satisfy hunger hence i consume only a small quantity thus to go no further than the quantity taken which in every other act of taking food plays an essential part the significance of common bread is externally set aside but this supernatural significance exists only in the imagination to the senses the wine remains wine the bread bread the schoolmen therefore had recourse to the precious distinction of substance and accidents all the accidents which constitute the nature of wine and bread are still there only that which is made up of these accidents the subject the substance is wanting is changed into the flesh and blood but all the properties together whose combination forms this unity are the substance itself what are wine and bread if i take from them the properties which make them what they are nothing flesh and blood have therefore no objective existence otherwise they must be an object to the unbelieving senses on the contrary the only valid witness of an objective existence taste smell touch sight testify unanimously to the reality of the wine and bread and nothing else the wine and bread are in reality natural but in imagination divine substances faith is the power of the imagination which makes the real unreal and the unreal real in direct contradiction with the truth of the senses with the truth of reason faith denies what objective reason affirms and affirms what it denies the mystery of the lord's supper is the mystery of faith hence the partaking of it is the highest most rapturous blissful act of the believing soul the negation of objective truth which is not gratifying to the feeling the truth of reality of the objective world and reason a negation which constitutes the essence of faith reaches its highest point in the lord's supper for faith here denies an immediately present evident indubitable object maintaining that it is not what the reason and senses declare it to be that it is only in appearance bread but in reality flesh the position of the schoolman that according to the accidents it is bread and according to the substance flesh is merely the abstract explanatory intellectual expression of what faith accepts and declares and has therefore no other meaning than this 
to the senses or to common perception, it is bread, but in truth, flesh. Where, therefore, the imaginative tendency of faith has assumed such power over the senses and reason as to deny the most evident sensible truths, it is no wonder if believers can raise themselves to such a degree of exaltation as actually to see blood instead of wine. Such examples Catholicism has to show. Little is wanting in order to perceive externally what faith and imagination hold to be real. So long as faith in the mystery of the Lord's Supper as a holy, nay, the holiest, highest truth, governed man, so long was his governing principle the imagination. All criteria of reality and unreality, of unreason and reason, had disappeared. Anything whatever that could be imagined passed for real possibility. Religion hallowed every contradiction of reason, of the nature of things. Do not ridicule the absurd questions of the schoolmen. They were necessary consequences of faith. That which is only a matter of feeling had to be made a matter of reason. That which contradicts the understanding had to be made not to contradict it. This was the fundamental contradiction of scholasticism, whence all other contradictions followed, of course. And it is no particular importance whether I believe the Protestant or the Catholic doctrine of the Lord's Supper. The sole distinction is that in Protestantism it is only on the tongue, in the act of partaking, that flesh and blood are united in a thoroughly miraculous manner with bread and wine while in Catholicism it is before the act of partaking by the power of the priest, who, however, here acts only in the name of the Almighty, that bread and wine are really transmuted into flesh and blood. The Protestant prudently avoids a definite explanation. He does not lay himself open, like the pious, uncritical simplicity of Catholicism, whose God as an external object can be devoured by a mouse, he shuts up his God within himself, where he can no more be torn from him, and thus secures him as well from the power of accident as from that of ridicule. Yet, notwithstanding this, he just as much as the Catholic consumes real flesh and blood in the bread and wine. Slight indeed was the difference at first between Protestants and Catholics in the doctrine of the Lord's Supper. Thus, at Ansbach, there arose a controversy on the question whether the body of Christ enters the stomach and is digested like other food. But although the imaginative activity of faith makes the objective existence the mere appearance and the emotional imaginary existence the truth and reality, Still, in itself or in truth, that which is really objective is only the natural elements. Even the host in the pyx of the Catholic priest is in itself only to faith a divine body. This essential thing into which he transubstantiates the divine being is only a thing of faith, for even here the body is not visible, tangible, tasteable as a body. That is, the bread is only in its significance, flesh. 
it is true that to faith this significance has the sense of actual existence as in general in the ecstasy of fervid feeling that which signifies becomes the thing signified it is held not to signify but to be the flesh but this state of being is not that of real flesh it is a state of being which is only believed in imagined i e it has only the value the quality of a significance a truth conveyed in symbol a thing which has a special significance for me is another thing in my imagination than reality the thing signifying is not itself that which is signified what it is is evident to the senses what it signifies is only in my feelings conception imagination is only for me and not for others is not objectively present so here when therefore zwinglius said that the lord's supper has only a subjective significance he said the same thing as his opponents only he disturbed the illusion of the religious imagination for that which is in the lord's supper is only an illusion of the imagination but with the further illusion that it is not an illusion Zwingli's only expressed nakedly prosaically rationalistically and therefore offensively what the others declared mystically indirectly inasmuch as they confessed that the effect of the lord's supper depends only on a worthy disposition or on faith i e that the bread and wine are the flesh and blood of the lord are the lord himself only for him for whom they have the supernatural significance of the divine body for on this alone depends the worthy disposition the religious emotion but if the lord's supper affects nothing consequently is nothing for only that which produces effects is without a certain state of mind without faith then in faith alone lies its reality the entire event goes forward in the feelings alone if the idea that i here receive the real body of the saviour acts on the religious feelings this idea itself arises from the feelings it produces devout sentiments because it is itself a devout idea thus here also the religious subject is acted on by himself as if by another being through the conception of an imaginary object therefore the process of the lord's supper can quite well even without the intermediation of bread and wine without any church ceremony be accomplished in the imagination there are innumerable devout poems the sole theme of which is the blood of christ in these we have a genuinely poetical celebration of the lord's supper in the lively representation of the suffering bleeding saviour the soul identifies itself with him here the saint in poetic exaltation drinks the pure blood unmixed with any contradictory material elements here there is no disturbing object between the idea of the blood and the blood itself 
but though the lord's supper or a sacrament in general is nothing without a certain state of mind without faith nevertheless religion presents the sacrament at the same time as something in itself real external distinct from the human being so that in the religious consciousness the true thing which is faith is made only a collateral thing a condition and the imaginary thing becomes the principal thing and the necessary imminent consequences and effects of this religious materialism of this subordination of the human to the supposed divine of the subjective to the supposed objective of truth to imagination of morality to religion the necessary consequences are superstition and immorality superstition because a thing has attributed to it an effect which does not lie in its nature because a thing is held up as not being what in truth is because a mere conception passes for objective reality immorality because unnecessarily in feeling the holiness of the action as such is separated from morality the partaking of the sacrament even apart from the state of mind becomes a holy and saving act such at least is the result in practice which knows nothing of the sophistical distinctions of theology in general wherever religion places itself in contradiction with reason it places itself also in contradiction with the moral sense only with the sense of truth coexists the sense of the right and good depravity of understanding is always depravity of the heart he who deludes and cheats his understanding has not a veracious honorable heart sophistry corrupts the whole man and the doctrine of the lord's supper is sophistry the truth of the disposition or of faith as a requisite to communion involves the untruth of the bodily presence of god and again the truth of the objective existence of the divine body involves the untruth of the disposition End of section 30.